inside look on mental health. I did it again. Oh, <laughs> Whoa, it's, it's been a while since you up. You changed the name of the show and I'm still kind of screwed. Life Unedited. Life Unedited. Jeez, I'm sorry. How <laughs> oh, dude. My show, too. Uh, I'll tell you. Well, you it's, have, it's been like three months. Well, you do four years of calling it one from, you know, plus I'm exhausted. I didn't get much sleep last night. You and me both, pal. I'll tell you about that one later. My guest today is uh, Alexandria Kahakis. She has written a book called... Katahakis, man. We we got to get you better with this phonetic spelling. She can yell when we're done. Katahakis. She is the uh, author of a book called Erotic Intelligence, and it's about sex sex addiction. And all jokes aside, this is pretty serious. I read the book. Uh, Alex, welcome on. Good morning, John. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about massacring your name. I think I got it right now. <laughs> That's okay. Not everything's perfect. Um, what is sex addiction? Other, you know, like I said, other other than all jokes aside, uh, I know women sit there and say it's an excuse. My wife is one of them. What exactly is it? Well, it's a pervasive pattern, usually of compulsive behaviors, and they're out of control compulsive behavior. So, the person, um, you know, is doing, is having more sex than they want to. Oftentimes, they don't even want to have sex, but because they've gone through the preoccupation and the ritualization of getting to that point, they do it anyway. Um, and often, this happens because uh, people use sex in order to make themselves feel better, to manage their mood, or they're highly impulsive if they have. ADHD, or they've just gotten into really bad pattern behaviors. But in any event, there are repeated efforts to stop, and the person can't. Um, oftentimes, there's a loss of time because it takes t- so much time to get into the sexual experience, mm-hmm. the fantasizing, the ritualizing, the preoccupation, and then there's all this time on the back end covering it up. So because of that, there's an inability to fulfill obligations. Um, these you know, behaviors interfere with work, school, family, friends. And even when the person has negative consequences, what we call unmanageability, mm-hmm. they keep doing it anyway because they can't stop. And then oftentimes we see an escalation, that the thing that used to get the person aroused no longer arouses their brain, really, um, and ultimately their body. So they start going after more and varied um, intense experiences. Yeah, definitely um, an addic- then, obviously definitely an addiction then. Yeah, yeah, it looks just like a drug addiction. Why would you? I'm sorry. Why would you get into this type of study? It seems, you know, kind of unusual, and maybe even so, you know, so for you know more so for a woman. Not trying to be sexist, just kind of throwing it out there. Why? Of all the fields of study you could have chosen, why this one? Well, I, um, you know, grew up in a family where my parents were mostly struggling with their marriage, and nobody was screaming or yelling or beating each other up, but. Um, in general, the marriage always seemed like it was problematic, and my parents took really good care of us. We always had a roof over our head. We were fed, but as I got older and got into a relationship in my 20s, late 20s, early 30s, I realized I didn't know anything about what it meant to have a long-term sexual relationship with someone. So I started studying healthy sexuality, and in the late 90s, I ran into this problem called sex addiction that nobody was really talking about. So, so, so you're kind of looking at it from a family standpoint. Uh, you didn't have really a, any good role models, it, it, is what oh, you're yeah, saying. Correct. So that right. kind of, so that's going to be kind of rough. Now, not to get too far into your intimate relationships, what, what, what were you missing when, when you started first started dating or getting serious? Did you feel like you you didn't want to get real close to someone? 
Well, I mean, I was dating in the 80s, mm-hmm. and um, if anybody was around at that time, it was one just one big party, and it was really um, pre-AIDS. I mean, AIDS started showing up in the scientific literature in the late 70s. And so um, there's lots of casual sex, lots of partying, lots of fun. And that's what people do in their 20s in large part. But um, the relationships I was getting involved with weren't sticking because I wasn't really emotionally available and neither were the people I was, was choosing. And so, um, you know, as I got into my early 30s, everybody around me was getting married and having families, and I wasn't. And so I figured I needed to investigate what was up, what was different for me, um, why I was picking the people I was picking. Interesting. What makes this happen? Is it more environmental, growing up, seeing different things? Is there any sexual abuse a part of this? Or is you know, sexual, yeah, sexual abuse is a minor part of it. Most sex addicts have not been sexually abused. Certainly a fraction of them have been, but this is more of an intimacy disorder. This is more of an early childhood attachment problem um, where, again, if we don't have good role models, um, if our primary caregivers aren't, you know, touching us, talking to us, um, letting us know that we have value, et cetera, and that we deserve to be in a relationship with people that care for us, um, that's going to be a big component to it. And then you add a culture on top of that that is um, advertising sex at every turn, that sex will make you happy, beauty will make you happy, purchasing cars will make you happy. Um, you've, got a, you've got a culture that is collectively gone haywire. Are we afraid as a society, obviously, to even talk about this? Is it so kept in the dark, kind of like even more so than drug abuse or alcohol abuse? Oh, definitely. I think sex is, you know, the most secretive and most shameful thing to talk about for people. And so we giggle at it and scoff at it and point fingers at other people. But I believe that everybody has sexual issues. Everybody. Mm. Everybody's got sexual secrets, fantasies they don't tell their partner about, um, you know, concerns about sex. Their but that bodies. would make, and I see me for a second, that would make, if you're not discussing your fantasies and you're keeping them within yourself, that would be a problem with sexes, you know, from what you're saying, because uh, my fantasies, or whatever they may be, are personal. I, I personally don't see them as being an issue, but you're saying there, there could be some hiding there? Yeah, I'm just saying that people don't admit to themselves what's arousing to them. They don't think about it, or um, they're afraid of what it would say about them. And so they would prefer not to see themselves in that light. Because we all have all aspects to ourselves. We're all masculine, feminine, um, you know, sweet and passionate, and also aggressive and assertive. And so all of these dynamics can come into play sexually, and it depends on the meaning that we give to them as to how they play out. Are we more repressed as a society? I, I believe so here in the, in the States, I believe so. I know in foreign countries, England and so forth, they're more open about their sexuality. But are we more uh, repressed with it? Do we push it down so deep that it comes out in other areas? Yeah, I think that's true. I think we, um, you know, we have a very puritanical streak that runs through the fiber of our culture. And then on top of that, we have an overlay of, um, you know, extreme levels of pornography and things of that nature. So we do have, um, you know, I think a very repressed streak going on. And we also don't have ways of educating our children um, about sex, sex and sexuality. 
Well, uh, you know, uh, sexual classes in high school and so forth, they they really don't get into details about it. They don't really get into the details about uh, specific acts, whatever they be, masturbation, relationships. Uh, I, I, it's more mechanical. I don't even see them touching on uh, intimacy at all. And I think that has a lot to do with the extreme uh, right wing there. Would you agree? Yeah, I think what happens is that we don't have um, a sex education program in this country, and also parents don't know how to talk to their children about sex and sexuality. They don't normalize their bodies, their bodily functions. Um, they don't teach them about um, what it means to, you know, even touch themselves in ways that are appropriate or um, okay. And so um, that leaves people learning about sex from pornography and from their peers. And, you know, it's all secretive. How should a parent or parents, in your opinion, uh, bring up sexuality with their kids, especially as teenagers get older? There's a lot of embarrassment. Uh, uh, personally, I have no embarrassment speaking to my children within bounds. But how would you suggest that, you know, parents or, or guardians are able to, uh, to approach this issue? Well, I think, you know, it's developmental. As children start to touch their bodies, I mean, usually around four years old, they become obsessed with their own genitals. Um, they're on a high exploration um, expedition at that point. And so it's about not shaming them, but teaching them that that's for them and they should do it in private. Um, and then as they start to get older, you know, especially kids around eight to ten years old, um, usually are very squeamish about sex. They think it's gross. They hear about French kids. They think it's disgusting. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, but really around the age of 11, um, I think is is very important for parents to sit down with their children and explain to them that their bodies belong to them and that no one else has the right to touch them, um, that they're their private parts and you know, so forth. And then also explain to them, especially to boys, what masturbation is and what's going to happen as they start to go into puberty and their voice changes and they get hair on their body and um, that eventually they're going to have um, something happen called ejaculation and what that is. And the parent has to be secure in their own sexuality without their own shame because typically parents will transfer their shame onto their kids and we end up carrying the shame of our families. You look in, uh, I would touch on religious upbringing as a major factor. Would you feel that way? Well, sure. I mean, if you put a religious overlay on top of all of this, then you have yet another filter um, that we're going through. So this is multi-layered. Um, it's early childhood attachment. It's um, cultural. It's religious. It's the larger culture. Um, it, it goes on and on. It's the culture of the neighborhood you live in or True. the region of the country you live in. Yeah, a lot of it's environmental and, and how you handle yeah. that. It, it's funny. I'm going to go back a couple of years with my with my youngest daughter when she was nine. Uh, she couldn't stand the word sex, so she came up with the term banana bread, which I thought, which thinking about, it, I actually thought kind of fit <laughs> a little bit. But uh, yeah, <laughs> she's going to kill me for saying this. But I um. I, I look back at my parents, uh, in particular my father and my mother. They were very affectionate, uh, very openly mm -hmm. affectionate. Uh, they expressed their love. They, were, they would hold hands. They'd hug. They'd kiss. When they fought, it was pretty intense. And you know, then they would make up. And, and, and my father, at least for me being a boy, was very open in his discussion, sometimes even 
too much as far as I was concerned. Right. But looking back on it, uh, I like to think I have a healthy sex life, you know, uh, an attitude towards sex. And we, my wife and I hope we pass that on to our children. Our oldest is 21 and uh, uh, female, and, and our youngest, uh, also a female, is, will be 12 at the end of the month. So I'm hoping we give them that because whether we admit it or not in a society, uh, sex is very important to a relationship, uh, in particular to marriage. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's lovely that you have that kind of relationship and your children have seen that model because children need to see their parents touching, kissing, being affectionate, not being sexual or sexualized because that's inappropriate and that's a form of covert incest, really, or environmental uh, sexual abuse. Kids don't need to see or hear overt sexuality, but they do need to see a loving connection between two people. So this modeling healthy behavior. And then it's also modeling a lack of shame about um, that sort of thing. Couldn't agree with you more. We're going to take a break, Alex. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Be back in a few moments. If you think you can only get the latest breaking national and regional sports news from the big guys down the dial, think again. Okay, you made 27 saves tonight, and a lot of them came off of rebounds and second and third chance opportunities. Was that something that you consciously tried to work on going into tonight? Well, that's that's something I've worked on all year. Uh, Do you have an idea of what you'd like the identity of this basketball team to be moving forward and the qualities you'd look for in the next head coach? Well, the qualities of the next head coach... Um, I believe a head coach has to be a manager. I think they have to be a teacher. I think they have to be a motivator. Matt Lombardo on the scene and on the air each and every Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. on your home for local sports, WCHC1520.com and 1520WCHE. You'd never agree to surgery based on a phone call from a complete stranger. So why would you take investment advice from a telemarketer? Hi, I'm Tom McClovick from the Pennsylvania Securities Commission. Take time to find a good broker or investment advisor. Check their registration and record by calling the PSC at 800-600-0007 or visit www.psc.state.pa.us. Prom and graduation season is a special time for teens. Some parents think hosting parties in their homes will keep teens out of trouble. But if alcohol is served, the trouble is just beginning. Parents, making alcohol available to teens is illegal. And you will be prosecuted. Parents who host lose the most. Protect yourself and us. Don't be a party to teenage drinking. It's against the law. It's against the law. To report underage drinking, call 1-888-UNDER-21. Brought to you by the Pennsylvania DUI Association. Visit PADUI. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Alexandria Katahakis. Katahakis. She has written the book Erotic Intelligence. Uh, this is concerning sex addiction. Um, I forgot to give a little disclaimer there. Uh, parents, young people, you might want to make sure that the uh, kids are out of the room for this topic. Uh, it's going to get a little, little detail, a little more detail than normal. Alex, who, who has this problem more, male or female? Well, 
right now, um, the males are outpacing the females, but the females are certainly catching up. Um, we have some statistics, but it's hard to tell you know, how accurate they are because it's hard to really um, track these behaviors. People self-report. We don't really know what's true and what isn't. But um, we know that more and more uh, women are getting online um, you know, to look at sex and look at pornography. So, um, you know, women are certainly starting to come up in the ranks. What would you say, uh, are the symptoms any different between a male and female? Cause, because obviously a man's considered a stud if he's out there doing these things, especially if he's single, you know, he's getting it all. Where a female would be looked upon, you know, uh, obviously as a whore. Well, yeah. I mean, what happens is that it, it gets normalized. Like, you hear women say all the time, oh, all guys look at porn. And men say to me also, all men look at porn. And so looking at porn and not being able to get up from the computer because you, you were there for two, three, five hours, um, you know, several days a week, and there's this bargaining that goes back and forth about I'm not going to do it tonight or I'm only going to do it a couple nights or I won't do it that long, starts to sound like the alcoholic that's measuring booze or only drinking beer instead of hard liquor on some night. So um, there, there's a real wrestling with the problem. Um, there have been plenty of studies that show that um, there was a survey that was based on random phone interviews with 288 husbands across the country. Okay. And um, there were several interviews, and it revealed that four in ten husbands regularly used porn. So that's almost half. Okay. And um, wh whether or not that was problematic or not was not in the survey, but it just tells us how many people um, are looking at it. And there was another study with, um, you know, Generation X, and nine out of ten young men looked at porn, and nearly a third of the young women were looking at porn. Would they, wouldn't you, in a couple ways, could this just be curiosity, a way of arousing oneself? Could it be a problem sure. in the relationship? I mean, it seems like it could be, it could be a, a few different things other than just an addiction. It's definitely that, and also, you know, we are changing radically as a result of Internet access and the computer. Um, it's changing our brains in ways that we don't really know yet because of the high level of interaction, um, the rapid-fire imagery. All of it is arousing to our neurochemistry and to our bodies, not necessarily sexually arousing. You know, looking at, you know, whatever news you're looking at online is not sexually arousing, but it's, it's arousing to the body because we're always seeking novelty now. Um, people have a very difficult time focusing. Less people are reading today because of that problem, because we are after sound bites and quick information because there's so much to gather. What turns women on as far as the difference between women and men? What is something that they find appealing, uh, either through porn or just fantasy? Well, women are much more, um, in general, aroused by the idea of relationship, and um, they will confuse sex with love, um, and it's all about getting into the, um, this idea that if you know, a woman has sex with a man, then he will love her. But if she gives that to him, then she's acceptable, and um, you know, she matters in the world, because we have cultural, um, cultural beliefs uh, that we propagate for women in our country as well as we do for the problems we have with men. If you, What you said is that um, 
concerning women and, and love as a way of expressing it, and they, they need to feel that way, or at least most need to feel that way in order to have a sexual relationship. How is that different then from a woman who is a sexual addict? Is she going out and having more sexual contact without any kind of feelings? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, women are not as inclined to, you know, they're not going to go to a strip club for guys, to look at guys, and they're likely not going to hire male prostitutes the way that men might. But um, there's a woman who wrote a book called um, Ready to Heal for Women Sex Addicts Specifically, and she delineates these cultural beliefs, one of which is I must be good to be worthy of love. And sometimes good means um, I have to have sex. And that the opposing message is, if I'm sexual, then I'm bad. And so there's a bind right there. And then it goes on to, you know, that I'm not really a woman unless someone wants me sexually or romantically, and that I have to be sexual to be loved. And these are very clearly embedded beliefs um, in our culture today. So you're saying possibly women are looking for love by giving themselves sexually, and then there's the pain involved of of realizing that's not going to happen and they go from one partner to another partner looking for that love? Right. It becomes sort of a serial monogamous problem. Um, and even, you know, sometimes losing themselves certainly in one night stands or uh, always having somebody around for casual sex because they're using that to regulate their mood and to make themselves feel good, but ultimately they feel horrible because of the shame that comes crashing in with, um, you know, letting oneself be used like that over and over again. How important is a father to a daughter in how they interact and, and how a daughter would view uh, relationships and sexuality? Well, it's extremely important because girls, you know, need their fathers, their, their first opposite sex love relationship. And so how a father treats his daughter, how he talks to her, whether he's hypercritical or he's loving and um, reassuring and championing her will depend on how she feels about her sexuality and the kind of guy she chooses. Because um, we, we pick what we recognize as safe and as um, comfort and as home. Hmm. So if somebody comes from an abusive relationship, they recognize that as home. Interesting. Why would, what's with men? Uh, what drives them? Because, again, most women, my wife being one of them, would say it's all men cheat. Uh, uh, we're driven by our hormones, and it doesn't matter what we do. We, we can't fight it. What, what are the signs for a man? What, what, what's going on there? Well, again, I think with men, it depends on um, what I see a lot with men that are sex addicts who self-identify as sex addicts is that they have a very difficult time being assertive. They can be assertive and run companies. They can be assertive and um, do unbelievable amounts of things in the workplace. But when it comes to being assertive in an intimate relationship, they have a lot of problem with it. They're sometimes afraid of women's anger. They're afraid of women's feeling states. They feel responsible for um, when a woman gets upset. They don't know what to do with it. And so they can be very passive-aggressive in relationship and, and not say anything about their upset and then go act it out sexually. So they end up eroticizing their rage. 
So rather than saying, you know what, that really um, pisses me off when you say that, or I often feel like you are denigrating me or you don't think I can handle the responsibility of what have you, and really hashing it out with their partner, they say nothing or they have an attitude or they shut down, and then they go to a massage parlor and get a hand job. Interesting. And that's that's the way they level the playing field. And this is a pattern I've seen for years now, over and over again. So that's one of the things that happens in relationship is that people are not honest with one another. That's what I was going to get into next. What finally brings a person in for treatment? Is there do they do they realize it themselves? Do they get arrested? Do they get an STD? Does the spouse find out? Is there all a mix of all of those? All of the above. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Often, oftentimes the spouse catches them, and that's what brings them into treatment. And many, many times, you know, the person who's been caught feels relieved. Um, they're tired of doing it. They don't know how to get out of doing it. They're sick of the lies. They're sick of the secrets. And, um, you know, it's like those old-fashioned circus plate spinners where uh, you have to keep running to keep all the plates spinning before they come crashing down. Um, sometimes people have arrests. I mean, we see arrests with people that solicit prostitutes or gay men who go into bathhouses or parks or having anonymous sex in public places. Um, STDs don't seem to stop most people. Oh, great. Um, you know, they will um, sometimes reveal it to their partners on occasion, but a lot of times they don't. What about, but, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, sometimes those people will stop having sex in uh, marriage. Well, that would definitely be a, a sign to me. Well, then again, you might think your partner's just lost an interest or they're having an affair. So I guess you kind of, right. you know, then I guess you kind of, uh, you know, got to weed that out. What, what can be, uh, what can happen to a relationship? What, do, do relationships actually survive this? Yeah, they survive it if both people commit to getting into recovery, if both people get into their own individual therapy, um, if they first of all have to determine that there's something worth saving, that they actually really love each other, um, that you know keeping your family together is important for whatever reason, um, because it's an enormous commitment to oneself, to the partner, to the family, um, and it's a lot of work. I mean, we estimate that it takes three to five years to repair a marriage after sex Jeez. addiction. Um, and it can be done if both people are really willing to roll up their sleeves and go to work. Because if somebody stops having sex in the marriage and the other person doesn't say anything because they don't care or they don't notice, they're checked out also for their own reasons. You know, are, are more and more. I'm sorry. Are, are more and more men using this as uh, as an excuse? You have Tiger Woods. Uh, a couple other famous people. I, I know you work out. You know you work out of L.A., so there's probably a lot of people you've seen that we would know. It, it, are they using it as an excuse when they come in? Can you tell the difference between an excuse and an actual addiction? Well, yeah. I mean, we actually have a test online on my website, the centerforhealthysex.com, oh. called the Hypersexual Behavioral Inventory. And if you take that test and you score, then it's likely you have a problem. But um, just because someone's had an affair or they've looked at pornography does not make them a sex addict. And I'm not interested in, you know, colonizing people or, you know, to be on any kind of moral witch hunt to make people something that they're not. How would you uh, look at this uh, as a brain chemical problem, as an environmental problem, uh, as a mental health issue, again, or a combination of all three? It's a 
combination. It's what we call a neuropsychobiological problem, meaning the brain's involved because of the reward system and the, the cascade of chemicals that occur getting into the experience. There's a high. Um, it's psychological because of all the issues we've been talking about, intimacy, lack of assertion, um, control, power. And then it's biological because it affects the body in terms of um, the arousal and the intensity-seeking processes. What's more important to the, uh, to the person who has this? Is it the chase? Is it the actual orgasm? Uh, or is it just no, the fact, yeah. you know, uh, to, just to escape? It's definitely the escape and the chase and the desire for power and control. The orgasm is the shortest part of the cycle, and once the orgasm happens, um, the whole experience is over. There's nothing left from there. And then there's an emptiness. Yes, emptiness, often shame, guilt, sometimes remorse. Um, or a repackaging of oneself that says, I'm not really hurting anybody, I won't do it again. So there's transitory guilt, and then there's a reframing process that goes on also. Excellent. We're going to touch back on, on that topic because I have some curiosity there. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today my guest is Alexandria Katahakis. Did I get it right that time, Matt? Yes, that's Okay, correct. I got it right there. And she's written a book called Erotic, Erotic Intelligence, and the topic today is sex addiction. We'll be back in a few. Hello, my name is Dr. Lawrence Schofield. If you're suffering from pain caused by an injury or excessive activity or just the rigors of everyday life, I invite you to experience the total wellness approach to better health at Advanced Chiropractic Wellness Center. Chiropractic adjustments are part of a total approach in looking for underlying causes of pain. We are a wellness center that offers comprehensive treatment plans. Services include myofascial release, rehabilitation exercises, cold laser therapy, cervical traction, nutritional counseling, and massage therapy. The dedicated staff members at Advanced Chiropractic Wellness Center are committed to bringing you exceptional services leading you to a better way of life. Our office accepts most major insurances, as well as motor vehicle accidents, personal injury, and worker compensation claims. We are located in Westchester on Westtown Road, just off Market Street. For more information or an appointment, call 610-696-8888 or visit our informative website at advanced-chiro.net to learn more about our wellness center. Again, call 610-696-8888 for an appointment today. Remember, it's your life. Live it in health. If you're looking for the latest breaking Philadelphia sports news, look no further than Matt Lombardo. All right, so what do you got for me, Matt Lombardo? I got breaking news for you. found out last night that the Sixers point on firing head coach Eddie Jordan. Ed Stefanski will not be fired. He has been told to find a new head coach. I spoke with a source just before we went on the air, a longtime beat writer, and they said Donovan McNabb will be traded, and this thing could be announced by Monday afternoon. That's the Matt Lombardo Show on your drive home each and every Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m on your home for local sports, 1520 WCHE and WCHE1520.com. I want to talk to you about a subject many people try to ignore, child sexual abuse. Each year in Pennsylvania, thousands of children are sexually abused, and most cases are never reported. Without help, these children could suffer a lifetime of health issues. But there is hope, you. If you believe a child is being sexually abused, please visit heroproject.org. 
or call 1-877-874-HERO. You'd never agree to surgery based on a phone call from a complete stranger. So why would you take investment advice from a telemarketer? Hi, I'm Tom McClovick from the Pennsylvania Securities Commission. Take time to find a good broker or investment advisor. Check their registration and record by calling the PSC at 800-600-0007 or visit www.psc.state.pa.us. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Alexandria Katahakis. She is the author of Erotic Intelligence and is a book about sex addiction, which seems to be a hot topic right now with uh, Tiger Woods and his issues. Uh, no one's really sure if he is a sex addict, but a lot of people like to say that. Alex, through treatment, um, what are you looking at when, when you start treatment? Are you, are you starting with brain chemicals? Can you give uh, an antidepressant or something? Or do you start looking at just the physical part and the mental part itself? Well, first we start looking at the cognitive distortions, meaning the ways that people are lying to themselves. Um, so we get people to make a list of all the secrets and lies they have from their partners, um, and we start to look at their sexual history with the fine-tooth comb so that people can see where this problem started and how it started to escalate over time and the way they started to um, build a tolerance um, for, you know, wanting more and needing more. Um, and so there's a lot of work that people have to do, a lot of writing that they have to do. We help them look at their personal addictive cycle, what exactly, you know, triggers them to want to act out and the kind of the ritual and the preoccupation they go through over and over and over again. So a lot of it is a, a process of really breaking through the denial and the contradictions that people have uh, because addiction really thrives in contradiction. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step. And then if a person can really stop the behavior, start confronting themselves, sometimes they start to feel better just in 30 days, and they don't necessarily need an antidepressant. Um, if there's an underlying depression or high anxiety, then maybe they do need medication. How long uh, is someone living this lifestyle before they come into uh, therapy? Uh, four years, five, a lifetime? It depends. I mean, I have people call me in their early 30s and people call me in their mid to late 50s. Wow. Um, So, right, you can imagine that it's a lot easier to change your life at 30 than 55. How do you start, if I came in, and not that I have this, but if I came into you and, and I, you have uh, diagnosed me with a sexual addiction, what's the first step? Where, where, where do we go here? Do we start doing some sort of exercises? Am I allowed to have sex? You know, how did well, you do that? I, it, it, it depends on what your behaviors are. If, if the person masturbates compulsively, meaning every day, um, several hours a day, or every day to pornography, no matter what, and they've done it since they were 15 and they're 38, then I might ask them to not masturbate for a week and see what that's like for them. You know, do they get anxious? Do they get depressed? Can they not do it? Because if you can't not do something, then you probably have a problem. Um, so that would be the first start, is to really look at the behavior that's the most destructive and hurtful 
and to get the person to agree to stop that behavior. And in the stopping of it, we also provide people with other coping mechanisms like making phone calls, um, coming to therapy, going to 12-step meetings, reaching out to other people, uh, keeping a journal about what their mood is like and what they're going through. And sometimes that includes no sex with a partner for yeah. 30 days. No sex for 30 um, days. Yeah, and yeah. usually if the spouse has caught you know, some, their person cheating, they're so angry, upset, and disgusted, they don't want to have sex with them anyway, so it's usually not a problem. When one is, again, when one is going through the treatment, uh, what are the chances of relapse? It depends on how much support the person gets. Um, if they really follow treatment recommendations, it's low. And if they want to do it themselves or they think this isn't, you know, therapy's not really going to help them, then the chance of relapse is very high. Uh, because this is a problem of isolation, a problem of secrecy, lying, denial. And when people have high levels of accountability, when they know that they're going to come into my office every week and tell me whether they acted out sexually or not, that starts to create um, a sense of you know, responsibility to themselves, the word that they have, um, a commitment that they've made, and to me. Likewise with people in 12-step programs. Does this cross over all, obviously all genders, but uh, religions, uh, races, uh, what have you? It is uh, uh, economic type of you know of people. There are poorer people uh, have less opportunity for this. You know, how would this work? Just crossing over through society. Well, I think we we here um, at the Center for Healthy Sex try to be very sensitive to diversity issues and cultural issues. And so we really look at what the person is deeming a problem for them. And early on, I might think that you have many more problems than you think you have, mm. but we're going to start with the thing that you think is most destructive. And typically as people get healthier and they start changing their lives, they start to see that these other behaviors they were hanging on to are probably problematic for them too. It's probably keeping them from being more intimate, more connected to their primary relationship. So they start to voluntarily give things up. Would you say that, again, women, is it easier to treat a woman than we to treat a man? Oh, boy. I mean, people are so different. Yeah. It depends on how motivated someone is to treatment, how much they really want to get better, and also how much trauma they have. Um, if somebody is very, very traumatized, it's di difficult for them, and it takes more time for them um, to get better, no matter what their problems are. How? Um, what's the difference between we'd say good sex, normal sex, than something that's outside the realm. It could be you know, someone's kinkiness, uh, a different preference. How can you tell again that there's something unusual about that or instead of just having you know, different preferences? Well, I guess my litmus test is how relational is the sex? Um, do you really know this person? Do, you, do they care about you? Do you care about them? Um, are you making connection during the sex act? Are your eyes open? Um, when you're looking at one another, what are you seeing? Um, when your partner's looking at you, what is your reaction to that looking? Um, so is there love involved with the act itself? Because if people have certain preferences sexually or what you're calling, quote, kinky, and it's just mechanistic and it's pornographic and it's just about getting off, um, then that's likely going to feel dead and empty and, you know, very lonely over time. Um, 
But if the same couple are really in love with one another, connected with one another, and they're experimental and their sex life is varied and they're into role play and fantasy with each other, then that can be really erotic and fun sex. How would you view someone who's in the uh, pornography industry, uh, someone who actually acts in the film? Is there more, other than just work, are there Mm -hmm. people who probably have a sexual addiction in there? Um, Yeah, some of them do, and many of them are very, very traumatized um, before getting into the industry, Um, and then the industry will certainly polish that off because it's very mechanistic. If you've ever been on a porn set, there's nothing sexy about it. It's actually um, kind of mechanical and really sort of gross because you've got bright lights, very hot lights. Oftentimes there are buckets of lubrication on the set. Um, people are using drugs in order to endure some of the sex acts, especially the females. The guys are all taking Viagra, Cialis. They're all terrified of losing their erections. Um, so it's a high performance, highly mechanical. You kind of have to hit your mark when the cameras are rolling and get the job done. Yeah, so money shot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's really, um, you know, very sad to me more than it is exciting. And that's not to say that there isn't pornography that's being made now where they're trying to show people being more relational, more connected. Um, there's porn that's being made specifically for women mm-hmm. that's more uh, relational. Why do we, as a society, in particular here in the States, we, you said we're bombarded with sex. I, I look at a Coors Light commercial, and if I have a you know a Coors Light, I'm going to have six different women sitting with me while I'm watching the hockey game. Right. Where, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, especially How's since that I'm married. Going for you? Actually, since I'm married, well, back in the past, it wasn't too bad. But uh, how? How do you start up a, a normal relationship? It has to be hit or miss. Do you automatically tell someone who comes into your life? How quickly do you say, "Look, I've got an addiction." I have a sexual addiction because I rather hear, uh, you know, I'm, I've been battling a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction because sex sure. is so universal, so important. So well, how do you I know? About, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I talk about that in Erotic Intelligence. Mm-hmm. There's a very comprehensive dating plan in the middle of the book where um, first the process is about really getting to know somebody, going on several dates paying attention to what they're saying, having dates during the daytime, dates that don't cost money, where you're really establishing a friendship as opposed to sort of the hit that people get when they're out in bars and everybody's sexuality is out front row and center, but really dealing with the human being first. And then over time, as you know, the recovering sex addict starts to feel safe, and like this is somebody they can imagine having a future with, then they start to talk about, in in general terms, you know, I've had trouble with sex or I've been very promiscuous in my life in the past um, or I've had some issues that I want to talk to you about. So the, the recovering person doesn't have to come right out and say, hey, I'm a sex addict. Okay. Um, there are many ways to talk about these problems and the past um, in ways that are gentle to oneself and that the other person can hear it. I got to be honest, if uh, I started dating someone who told me that, I would more than likely go the opposite direction because for me, uh, a sexual relationship is very, very important. And I, mm-hmm. I'd be a little tentative 
actually a lot tentative uh, of, of a woman that I met who had this problem. I'd be worried that the sex isn't going to be that great because she's kind of censoring herself. Uh, the chances of her cheating uh, might be, I think, would be higher than the norm. Do you have the partner or a new partner come in after a while or someone's been dating for a while to learn more about this? Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, there's also a boundary plan in erotic intelligence for the partners as well. So they can say, you know, here are my boundaries and here are my consequences. Um, if you ever do this, that, or the other thing, if, if you do this, we will have to take a hiatus. If you do this, we'll separate. If you do this, then I can't be in the relationship at all. So everybody has to proceed with caution. And, you know, it's wise if you date someone who's in sexual recovery that you know that they've had at least you know, a year sobriety on a plan and that they've made some fundamental changes in their lives. And that's all you can do is watch the person's behavior, not what they say. I agree with that. You're, we are, you're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Alexandria Katahakis. She has written the book, Erotic Intelligence. It is about sex addiction. We'll be back in a few moments. Not every stock market scandal is a billion-dollar scam. Many times, the crime occurs on Main Street, not Wall Street. This is Steve Irwin, Pennsylvania Securities Commissioner. If you think you've been cheated or misled about an investment, call the PSC at 800-600-0007 or visit www.psc.state.pa.us. Prom and graduation season is a special time for teens. Some parents think hosting parties in their homes will keep teens out of trouble. But if alcohol is served, the trouble is just beginning. Parents, making alcohol available to teens is illegal. And you will be prosecuted. Parents who host lose the most. Protect yourself and us. Don't be a party to teenage drinking. It's against the law. It's against the law. To report underage drinking, call 1-888-UNDER-21. Brought to you by the Pennsylvania DUI Association. Visit PADUI.com. If you think you can only get the latest breaking national and regional sports news from the big guys down the dial, think again. Okay, you made 27 saves tonight, and a lot of them came off of rebounds and second and third chance opportunities. Was that something that you consciously tried to work on going into tonight? Well, that's, that's something I've worked on all year. That's... Uh, do you have an idea of what you'd like the identity of this basketball team to be moving forward and the qualities you'd look for in the next head coach? Well, the qualities of the next head coach... Um, I believe a head coach has to be a manager. I think they have to be a teacher. I think they have to be a motivator. Matt Lombardo on the scene and on the air each and every Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. on your home for local sports, WCHC1520.com and 1520WCHE. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Alexandria Katahakis. She has written the book, Erotic Intelligence. And I suggest that anyone who's interested in, in, in the, the healthy way of sex looking compared to uh, sexual problems, pick up this book. Alexandria, where can we get the book? What's the website? Um, my website is bestcenterforhealthysex.com, okay. and people can write to me there if they have questions as well. And, of course, you can always get it on Amazon.com as well. Other, other addictions, do people come in not just with a sexual addiction, you see an alcohol, uh, drug addiction, a way of coping with this? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Many sex addicts are multiply addicted. So, for example, a lot of people will have, you know, five, seven, 20 years in Alcoholics Anonymous, mm. and they've been acting out sexually the entire time, and they realize, well, I've never actually really been sober in my thinking. Um, sometimes sex addicts stop acting out sexually, and they start um, compulsively overeating, or they start spending a little bit too much time on eBay. Um, so it's not uncommon for addicts to have multiple addictions. When do you see people who come in with alternative lifestyles, we'll say swingers and so forth, that have finally realized, hey, this isn't, I shouldn't be doing this? Um, occasionally, yeah, but oftentimes um, when people are doing that into the later stages of their life, like into their 60s, okay. it's incredibly painful for them to stop because they've defined their self-worth by way of their sexuality and their looks. Um, I had a woman come into my office who was 63 years old and in a panic because she'd always been a swinger. Her husband wanted to stop. Um, she looked younger than her 63 years, and she still wanted to engage in the behaviors. He was 70 and didn't any longer huh. and she was a, a wreck because she had her currency was her sexuality her entire life she had no other value internally to herself um, so those stories can be really kind of tragic in the end see I've always seen it um, the way I've seen it is that there's people who live in a lifestyle such as this and they like the lifestyle and, and I guess I can understand at one point at some point a wife or the, or the husband will come and say hey this isn't for me anymore. And right. I, I would, would you classify someone with a sexual addiction who would go outside of the marriage now and partake still in the swinging scene? I mean, would you look um, at that as a symptom? Yeah. I mean, if somebody is, you know, a sex addict and they decide they want to be a swinger, then they're not going to be in recovery anymore. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And look, there's no one correct way to live. Mm -hmm. um, people are in polyamorous relationships where everybody knows that that's what the deal is and that's how they run their lives. And um, it works for people. You know, people that do it say that it's a scheduling nightmare. Mm -hmm. And um, it takes a lot of time because they're always processing feelings and somebody's getting hurt and somebody's feeling slighted. But um, you know, there are many, many ways to live today. It's just a preference, and it's about what works best for you. And are you really being honest with yourself that it works best for you? Now, how would you look at someone who might have uh, bipolar disorder? Uh, there are times when they can become hypersexual because of the chemicals mm -hmm. in their brain. Do they come to you sometimes because of issues like that, the shame after that, or are they just accepting it because it's part of the cycle they live? Well, some people come in and they say, look, I'm sexually compulsive. I cannot stop. And when we start to assess them, we see that they have a bipolar disorder or they're obsessive compulsive. When those people get on medication, the compulsive behaviors stop. And so they sometimes they're not really sex addicts. They have a mood disorder, and it's the mood disorder that's creating the problem. So you have to be careful about what's what. Is there... A genetic component to this could uh, a family member have had this uh, and then you know you picked it up or can, or can you pass it on is there something there in the brain chemicals through the studies that might be a part of a family genetic history you know, I don't think we have any science on that, but we do know that people inherit their genes and that also the early infancy, um, the prenatal environment and then the early infancy environment will um, either 
solidify bad traits or it will help to change those bad traits. And um, if somebody is growing up in an environment where there's addiction, uh, a behavioral addiction, not a chemical one, then they're likely to follow suit. So I don't think you can catch sex addiction, but you can certainly emulate it. Well, that's what I was saying environmentally. If a, a child or, or a young teen picks up on the fact that, you know, daddy or mommy are out doing these things, uh, and I guess you can't hide it that way. I guess there's times it does kind of leak into the family atmosphere. Oh, definitely. And, you know, sometimes I've had clients who were raised by single mothers and, you know, the women were having guys coming and going from the house and it felt like a sexualized environment. And those guys can end up being sex addicts and being very angry at women also. Interesting. Um, acting out their anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I could see because environment is so important. Obviously, how you're raised. It is. You know, I, I don't think people realize that with, with the divorce rate the way it is with absentee fathers, especially, as we said, with daughters. I read a comment one time, and I really like to, uh, to quote it sometimes, that the only true love a man will ever know is the love of his daughter. Mm. Because she really wants nothing other than your attention and your love. You know, right, where a spouse, yeah. you know, has expectations, woman you're dating has expectations. Your daughter just wants you to be there. Well, right. Her expectation is that you be a decent human being and that exactly. you show up for her. Um, and then the, the love is fairly unconditional. Yeah, exactly. And, and I always like that saying because I think if more fathers realize that, in particular with their daughters, I think we'd be better off. Yeah. As far, you know, as far as how we raise it, how we raise them. Right. You know, I mean, that, that's just the way I look at it. What's the future hold for treatment for sexual addiction? Well, I think we're getting more and more clear about what the problem is, the underlying problems. Um, we're certainly starting to engage in more research, which we need badly. Um, we're running a major research um, project right now with UCLA at the Center for Healthy Sex. So um, we're looking towards getting clearer and clearer about defining this problem and also what to call it, because there's a lot of um, argument in the field about what it is, what to call it. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. I mean, we're, we're all in one big experimental process right now with the Internet, with the accessibility of pornography, and how that's going to shift our um, bodies, our minds, and our brains in relation to sexuality and intimacy. Yeah, it's a whole different world now with the Internet. We're moving so yeah. fast uh, as a society. Yeah. I don't know if we can handle that. I, I think there's so many things coming at us, as you said, with you know pornography and so forth, people spending hours on the computer, because even that alone is an escape. Whether you're you know, chasing sex or not, you can sit there for four or five hours and not even realize it. Right. You know, you know, and you know, it's, again, it's changing the way that we focus, the way that we learn. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, one question I forgot to ask, and I shouldn't have asked it before, suicide rate. What's the situation um, there? Is there? A, well, obviously, I, I think there's a higher suicide rate, I'd have to say. You know, I've never had a patient um, commit suicide in the almost 15 years I've been doing this. I've had a couple people attempt it because the despair was so profound when they found out that they couldn't bear or they knew they were about to be found out and they didn't want to put their wife and kids through it, so they attempted, um, but they didn't make it. But, um, you know, this is a problem that will either steal everything that has any meaning from a person or kill them, whether it's by way of suicide or contracting HIV or something of that nature. So um, it's no laughing matter. 
Well, I hope if we did one thing today, I hope that we've taught people or that you've taught people that sexual addiction isn't a joke. It's not just an excuse. It is something for real that people have to learn to live with. And uh, again, thanks for doing the, you know, the service for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. I thanks. appreciate it all. No problem. We were talking with Alexandria Katahakis. She's the author of Erotic Intelligence. It is about sex addiction. Alexandra, give us one more time the uh, website. Uh, the website is thecenterforhealthysex.com. Great. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Thank you. Bye-bye. So what do you think, my friend? Sexual addiction or just uh, men being men? I think there might be a little bit of, uh, you can go either way with it. I think it does exist, but I think that if some people also use it as a crutch, either because of ignorance for not researching the topic or the fact that they just, you know, get caught in something and they just throw the tag out there that they're a sex addict. Well, you've got uh, Tiger Woods, which hasn't admitted at all he's a sex addict. And then there's a guy, I can't think of his name, he's married to Tia, uh, Tia Leone. Um, think of the game, he's an actor. I can't think, but he, he's uh, supposedly a sex addict. Interesting. I think in order, well, I guess you can't say, I, I was going to say in order to be a sex addict, you have to have opportunity, but that doesn't seem to be true either. You can use the internet, you can get prostitutes for men. I'm trying to imagine a woman sex addict. Well, I think that's easy. I, I think it's someone who goes through a significant amount of partners in a short amount of time and someone who might be searching for something that they have been missing. And they go about that search through sex. I think a lot of women, at least from my experience, and I've you know personal experience in looking out, you know, looking into someone's life, they use sex. They use it as an excuse. They have to feel they're in a relationship or that they're in love with someone in order to use, in order to have sex. I've seen Not that. Not necessarily. I, I, I think, I think deep down inside, at some point, they have to somehow convince themselves of that. I've just seen it around different people. You know, a lot of pattern. different situations. You got it, brother. Thanks All right, for we'll, talking, man. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. You're listening to 1520 AM WCAG Westchester. Heard worldwide at WCAG1520.com.